The internet is an ocean that we invent as we explore it. In the murky darkness of virtual places, there could be dragons, shagoths, leviathans. Certainly I have heard voices on the web who say we will discover or build a god when we reach the cyber ocean floor. People claim to remember past lives, I claim to remember a different, very different present life. The psychotic drones, where the mystic swims, they're drowning. Hello and welcome back to the Astro Flight Simulation, where we are attempting to navigate the digital world through art and culture. I'm joined today with perhaps the most important, perhaps the central figure to that task, Mr. Curtis Yarvin, previously mentioned Smolbug. Mr. Yarvin, well, welcome thank you. to Astro Flight Simulation Podcast. Why, thank you. That's very flattering and it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. I thank you very much for doing this. I often like to think... Um, we are sort of filling the vessel that you uh, set out back on your unqualified <laughs> reservations uh, uh, blog so many years ago. And I, you know, I always had, when I conceived of this show, you were one of the main guys I wanted to have on. Um, and I was looking forward to getting in touch with you. But I was prompted, I was probably going to wait for a little while, but I was prompted by your Gray Mirror article that I just uh, read. Um, Monarchy and Fascism Today. I think it came out on the 15th of December, but I just read that. And as soon as I finished it, I was like, okay, I got I to try, I try to get a hold of this guy. So turns out we have a mutual friend who wants to remain anonymous, who put us in touch with each other. So again, I appreciate your uh, graciousness for coming on here. And I really right, want to discuss and, that essay. And thank you to the mutual friend. Absolutely. But um, before we get there, I'd like a, a little bit of uh, preamble. Uh, because you do have something going on that's very, very interesting. Um, and I want to give you a chance to promote anything else you're working on as well at the moment. But the Passage Prize, you just put something on your Gray Mirror Substack today or yesterday about it, that you're going through uh, the poetry and you're judging the poetry. And you're, you're, you said you were pleasantly surprised with how high the quality of the poetry is. So I wanted to actually start the show by having you promote that, explain to listeners who are unfamiliar with it what it is, maybe how you got involved and just what you think of the whole thing. Uh, <clears throat> all right. Well, you know, the Passage Prize is this nice little idea because it's it's a way to promote the arts that is basically completely unconnected to any kind of establishment. And it's completely uncredentialed. It's completely unprestigious. Um, it's of really no interest to anyone. And, um, and what's neat about that is if you've been involved in the art scene, at all, you sort of realize how much it's this sort of reputation economy that works in very strange ways that um, like really can be mastered. And there are people who are who both master it and are also very, very good at their at their art. I mean, this is true also in the science departments. You know, you basically have to be pretty good at what you're supposed to be doing, and you have to be good at basically navigating the space. Um, and so, you know, sort of when you're trying to be good at an art form, which has been an art form for, you know, the last three millennia at least, and will continue to be an art form thereafter, and you're sort of like basically 
faced with then, okay, I'm going to kind of master this in this timeless sense, but also I'm going to be a really good fucking 21st century bureaucrat. And, um, and then in addition, I have my day job because of course there's no money in, in anything like this. Um, it's fairly daunting. And so, you know, the idea of basically going back to a much simpler model of um, selecting um, quality, which is just to basically have some cabal of, you know, editors who know that they know what they're doing um, and um, then just go direct and basically say straight over the transom submissions from anyone who would be interested in a crazy thing like this. And, um, you know, and, and, and it's neat to see what we got back because at first I was saying to Loma as the organizer of the, of the thing, I'm just like, well, honestly, um, you know, I'm supposed to nominate three finalists, but what if there are only two good poems? What if there's only one? What if there are none? Um, and, and, you know, I was like, why don't we just, in case there are none, why don't we just take the prize money, um, which comes from an anonymous donor who is not me, who I don't know who he is, he or she is, of course. Um, and um, I don't even know if it's one or several donors. Um, I'm pretty sure it's not the infamous Peter Thiel, um, but like, that's all I can tell you. Um, and um, uh, the infamous Thiel box, which have become such a hilarious. Uh, my you know, my mic name. is muted, right. but I'm, I'm cracking up right now. All right. All right. You can crack up without. Sure. OK. Um, um, I'm pretty sure that is not the origin of the mysterious and frankly, paltry, you know, some. But in any case, you know, what it turns out is, you know, as in any open contest, sort of most of what you're going to get is not going to be good in some way or another. But there's stuff in there that's really, really extremely good, um, you know, and enough that I basically want to. I, you know, Lomas and I were thinking about sort of expanding the like top three to maybe like a top 10 or 20 or something like that um, to, you know, recognize people who submitted shit that was really good, but, you know, didn't happen to win, which I realize that every editor of every contest says, but this time it's actually true. Uh, so, you know, I'm basically like, like, of course, in something like, you know, this kind of dissident art, you have, a, you know, a filter, which is just it filters for a certain kind of person who's disconnected from the mainstream in certain kinds of ways. And you have, <clears throat> you know, that's a fine position to take. It's a very dangerous position to take because you really then need to make sure you exceed the mainstream rather than falling short of it. Um, and, you know, the thing is the people who win these bureaucracy prizes are normally pretty, like often you have this phenomenon where their talent actually exceeds their work where you look at their work and you're just like, I know that someone who could write this could actually do something much better if it had some kind of like 1950 style poetry teacher who just like gave them a good fucking beating when they deserved it. Right. You know, but it's like, you know, how much beating was it? Was there in the, the, like the, the, the creative writing workshops that produced this work? I don't feel that there was much, uh, you know? And so, you know, the only sort of, um, like you have to, uh, you know, it, it sounds crude, but you have to beat yourself basically and um, or find one of these very, very old school kinds of teachers. Um, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm just pleased to see the good results from something like this. You know, I hate to like the, the idea of, you know, 
the idea of sort of reforming rather than replacing the mainstream prestigious institutions of anything, even something as insignificant as fucking poetry is like, there's no way there's going to be any kind of reform there. It's much too late for that. Yeah, I, I agree with that about literature, really just art in general. Um, yeah, one of the main impetuses for this show is to talk to self-published authors and, and bloggers, people who cut out the middleman. This Passage Prize is just one um, manifestation of the crowdsourcing power of the internet as a communication tool, because like you said, we're, we're cutting out the editors and stuff. One thing I like about self-published work is that it sometimes is rougher around the edges. It's sometimes it's pretty raw. And sometimes there's a, a certain um, draw for that because when you read, you know, recently published mainstream stuff, you it, it's obvious how excessively workshopped it's been to, to, you know. Sure, sure. I mean, I think there's a, there's a middle ground. You know, not everybody needs to sound like, if you take a music analogy, not everybody needs to sound like Dire Straits and not every need, everybody needs to sound like the fucking Ramones, you know. Like uh, there's, there's a place for, there's always, always will be and always is a place for high production values. The problem is that high production values have become this sort of, you know, negative signal of like shitty overproduced, you know, drac from some producer in LA, right? You know, I'm not saying Dire Straits is drac, but, you know, there was a lot of overproduced drac around that time, right? And so, you know, I think hopefully as this like world matures it'll basically see that actually like just because your shit is edited you know doesn't mean it needs to have passed the sensitivity review you know um and 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 like and and just because you have good book design you know doesn't mean you've sold out to Bertelsmann um like but yeah I so I think you know basically like there's a certain charm to like the just you know the production values of say bronze age mindset but um which is you know um um let's not forget i mean i'm not dissing owen who did the cover for bronze age mindset but like you know the the um it's just like you could take something like that and you could go in the direction that i guess zero hp is going in where you actually produce very very expensive beautiful limited editions um i know the guy who's like printing those like they like the the, the printing cost is insane uh you know um, um but worth it right and so you're basically doing something actually like you're you're going to the other side of that and you're doing something that's actually much more trad i mean the way a lot of authors in the 19th century like sort of the Carlisles of the world would work is that they would basically have people subscribe to their first editions, which is of course what I did, even though if I haven't gotten the first edition out yet. Um, but um, the, um, you know, those sorts of like disintermediated relationships are like, you know, it just makes like, I mean, it makes hardly any sense for anyone to connect to those old structures in any way. It's just like you're compromising yourself, right? Really in a way that will become increasingly conspicuous and like the return on investment is just so like crappy. I mean, like I'm sure BAP is making a fortune off of Bronze Age mindset and he got him well deserves it, you know? <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I mean, um, so, so, that's sort of the, you know, the feeling of having 
to construct sort of a new arts infrastructure is kind of all around us and completely obvious in more or less every field. Yeah, it's 20 years on here to the internet age, and this is this is clearly the natural evolution, and I'm really happy to see this is happening. Uh, you mentioned Zero a couple times. I had an ill-fated interview with him where the system crashed, but he was talking about publishing the book, which is beautiful, and mine should be coming soon. Uh, but he said he got the idea from you to make it such high end. I guess you wrote an article. I remember your article yeah. in American Mind, but was it the the Art Right article where you said the next Bronze Age mindset should be, you know, extremely limited, high production value? Yeah, it may have been another would, article. And I, would, and I would say now it needs an NFT, obviously, right? And um, the you shouldn't be able to basically move these items without moving the NFT as well. And um, um, because these are these are works of art that are only going to appreciate it's let's just like, you know, uh, like you're basically, you're sort of that way of marketing is just much more appropriate to a sort of narrow and highly engaged base than it is to like airport bookseller, right? You know, <laughs> airport bestseller, like, and I'm not, I mean, there are great books in the airport bookstores too, right? But, you know, the, uh, um, like that's not zero HP. And like, you know, when you do something like that, you're sort of showing the confidence that you're writing a cult classic whose, class, whose cultness is going to grow, you know, year after year. Um, you know, and in fact, I would advise if you're, you know, pulling a sort of NFT move, if you're doing something like that, if you have capital to hold back half of them, and then just sell them off gradually at auction, um, and you'll find you'll find it you'll you'll find a distinctly increasing uh, revenue stream. I, I project from that. Um, so yeah, I mean that's really that's that's a uh, that's a beautiful strategy, and um, you know it seems to be. Is he happy with the results? Is he? Uh, yeah, he's so you know you probably know this. He sold out in I think less than yeah. twelve hours. Oh yeah, sure, of course, of course, of course. I mean that's yeah. Like, like that's as it should be, right? You know, and 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 like the people who I bet there's a bunch of people in that auction who didn't click buy, who are like, yeah, and like who are already pissed at themselves for not clicking buy. Well, I right? guess you know? I even heard that there's some people that bought extra copies and now they're selling them for even more. Uh, you know, no shit, no yeah. shit, no shit. Already that's how this fucking market's supposed to work. From the first right? fucking run. Yeah. <laughs> We're on the first fucking run. No, 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 no. Your shit only goes up, man. Yeah, dude. Uh, <laughs> man. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So it's 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 sort of you're you're just pulling a completely different kind of energy. You know, of course, if you're you know moving an NFT, I don't know the details of a sale, but if you're moving an an NFT along with it, you can have exclusive, you know, board ape style parties where only people who have the book are invited. Like, you know, how I mean, how based is that, right? Yeah, it's fucking awesome. It's yeah, like yeah. the sky's the limit. You are you are way ahead of the, you. You've already thought this out. Like, because one of my other questions to you was uh, the passage price is going to be an annual prize, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so it's like. In ten years, there's going to be, you know, the passage party in L.A. or at Las Vegas or sure. something, and all the all the previous winners from the last ten years will will show up. Sure, that's how you that's how you that's how you build a social network, man. I mean, yeah. you know, no, it's social working. networks are everything. Social networks are everything. Um, yeah, no, no, it's cool. It's it's uh, you know, it's sort of hypothesized, you know, a long time ago that something like this could exist, but like yeah. to see it actually existing is like you know, pretty cool. When did you, if I may ask, when did you get into unqualified reservations? When, when did you just, Oh, that is, that is a good question. And it's, 
it leads right into the one digression I was going to allow myself. I heard about you in about around the time of Trump in 2016, 2017. And I sat and started reading the, not the gentle introduction, but the uh, open letter. Yeah. Uh, So again, like 2016, 2017, but I wasn't really in the right mindset yet. And I was going through it on my phone and I didn't realize how long it was. And I kind of, I kind of didn't get it, but I then discovered bronze age pervert through you because you were in um you were in because i started following you but i just never went back and read the whole blog right 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 so in 2020 i read your american mind essays about the coronavirus uh uh, rip globalization uh dead of coronavirus which led me to the michael anton review which led me to bronze age mindset which led me to twitter so then i went back in about 2020 and read through it and i was like oh i was in the right mindset i'm like this is fucking this is it right here. This guy saw everything coming. I, I mean, do you hear that a lot? I, I, I sometimes hear vaguely flattering things like that. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I got I, you know, I certainly got some things. I mean, like uh, I got many things wrong. Uh, you know, I got some things wrong. Uh, you know, uh, certainly good things have not really happened as a result of my work yet. Um, but, you know, there's there's definitely um, you know, uh, it's definitely, well, I mean, it's been basically almost uh, 15 years uh, since I first started uh, blogging. Uh, so, you know, that's, uh, that's quite a long time. And it's encouraging to see uh, strange things happening. Uh, you know, bear in mind that everything that happens often, you know, peaks and then goes back down again. Right, but right. Uh, hopefully that won't happen. But, uh, you know, we've, uh, yeah, you know, it's sort of been, it's been a very interesting ride. <laughs> You know, it's like my, um, my, my wife, my late wife, she passed in um, April, um, used to, um, you know, the, whenever she'd see the, um, the term red pill somewhere, she used to laugh, like it was like really funny, like that, you know, this term of, of that I at least commandeered was like appearing in like, ran well, you know, and then like, it was barred by the Nazis, and it was barred by the pickup artists at the same time, um, which is, I think, you know, uh, well, it, it, you know, testifies to the reality of, of, of the original source, you know, namely me, um, because which of those groups would steal it from the other, right? But um, <laughs> the, in any case, you know, like, she used to hear the term red pill, you know, occasionally and laugh at it. And now it's this like, sort of universal term of speech that I think even the libs have heard the term red pill, basically, at this point. Yeah, that's how I originally came to you, because a friend of mine who I, who I'm still friends with to this day, we were, um, you know, I won't go into this, but we were anarchists, you know, in our 20s. Yeah. And right. when Trump no. when Trump got elected, he was telling me all this stuff. And I'm like, dude, what the fuck are you talking about? Where are you getting all this from? And he showed me your blog and he's like, you got it. You have to be red pilled. You have to take the red pill. And I immediately was like, well, that's, I was like, that sounds like a great idea. Actually. <laughs> it's like, can we chop it up and start it? Right. You know? <laughs> but right. <laughs> but like I said, it didn't click until I don't know what it was. You know, I think the whole yeah. Trump administration gave me I'm like one of those few people who by the end of Trump, I was like totally sold. Uh, I don't know. Maybe there's a lot of us. The only other thing I want to say with my one digression was I now have a, a pretty solid group of friends that I met on Twitter, at least about 20, 25 guys. And we I mean, we work together. We're friends off Twitter and we're pretty tight knit group. And almost all of them have the same story to tell. They found BAP through reading you on American Mind, getting to the Michael Anton review and 
of the book and then buying the book. And I have to imagine how many more people there are like that. It yeah, has to be so, a big number. That's so that's so that's so interesting. I mean, you know, um, a BAP is, you know, just a like a titan in, in every right. way. Right. Really. I mean, you know, and and I sort of I came up a little earlier than BAP in some ways. And and my thing was always like there's definitely a difference between my take on the world and BAP's take on the world, um, you know, and they're like they're issues that we disagree on. But, you know, I think that, you know, BAP had this line um, where, um, and, you know, he's a very learned man, had this line where he's like the highest political virtue was loyalty. And, uh, and I think that, you know, sort of in, uh, you know, BAP had this really nice term, the faction of truth. Um, I think there's a sense of loyalty to the abstract truth that sort of goes above, you know, like, first of all, goes above disagreements about this or that detail of reality, but also wants to be like very much above like any kind of internal beefing or like, am I bigger than you? Or are you bigger than me? Or like, you know, um, and, you know, like, uh, I just, you know, I just take my hat off to BAP. He's an amazing artist. His like, you know, his productivity is insane. Um, you know, I, I yeah. I, he's a, Every he's a test Titan. I've kind of put him to, to, to figure out whether or not he's legitimate and whether or not he's worth, you know, giving as much energy as I do to his work. Uh, he passes all of them with flying <laughs> colors. I mean, he passed him. I mean, no. there's, there, there's not, nothing about that guy um, is shady or shaky. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I what you were just saying, though, about loyalty and all that, I had read some of uh, Carl Schmidt prior to coming to this milieu. And <laughs> I never understood the friend enemy distinction as well as I did. <laughs> yeah, at this point. Right, it's, right, right. It's real. It's extremely, extremely clear. And, you know, I'm like, you know, <clears throat> I'm sort of dealing with that in a social capacity at the moment. And it's it's just remarkable to see how like strong and especially sort of one-sided that uh approach is because it's like i think and this is still the right way in which to regard sort of the mainstream or the ruling class or the oligarchy in any sense is that the way it's always going to work is that they're going to have <clears throat> a friend enemy distinction toward us um, but we need to basically keep it to the friend distinction and basically rather than sort of parsing them as enemies, parse them as almost um, as like pagans to be converted. Um, and, and, and so when you're parsing them as pagans to be converted, you're parsing them as your fellow Romans who you love and respect, who are unfortunately under the spell of these bad old gods, right? And, and, and so you're not mad at them for basically throwing you to the lions or whatever they do. You're like, well, you know, this was something your bad old gods told you to do. And unfortunately, I must have sinned at some point because God has sentenced me to be eaten by lions, right? You know, but, you know, at like biggest dickus who actually put you in the arena, you know, you're not mad, right? You know, and, and, and sort of that, that approach toward sort of modulating the friend enemy distinction is never going to be reciprocated. They're always going to basically go full Carl Schmidt on you. Um, and, um, you know, that's, that's just, um, that's, that's, 
that's the game sort of as it has to be played, but it also creates this kind of incredible level of like solidarity and trust and sort of group loyalty. And, um, you know, that's, you can sort of tell the kind of Vasabia of a group by sort of how harshly defectors are public are punished, even defectors that sort of defect in some even like cosmetic way. Um, and like that, that ability to sort of expel and self-purify, you'll note how lacking that is among like Republicans. <laughs> and so that's also like, you know, an extremely, uh, an extremely good thing to, to be. But you start, you came up as an anarchist. You were a full, and you're still wearing black here. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. On the Zoomcast, yeah. Well, you know, I, I hesitated to say that though, because it fills people with the heads with, you know, Antifa smashing windows and stuff but you know you gotta understand i came up in the trump era i i turned you know 21 i think in 2011 so right. I, I said the trump era i meant to say the bush era the george w right. bush era yeah yeah so i was probably 21 when 9 11 happened so for me to oppose and I actually i have an episode of this coming in the near future the the shifting political spectrum over the last 20 years because sure. I'm sure you've talked about this somewhere, but the right now has taken up quite a lot of the the uh, the political stances that the left used to hold. And the left has completely abandoned some sure. of their 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 more uh, redeemable positions. So to oppose, you know, invading Iraq and Afghanistan in 2003 from the left, I I don't really have any misgivings about that. I don't really regret it. I'm not afraid to. Sure. Admit it. Sure. And in fact, you know, at that time, really, um, <clears throat> it's very easy to see that you were right and I was wrong because. At that time, I was basically a neoconservative, right? And, um, you know, being a, a neoconservative, I was like, you know, I, I sort of followed these uh, principles out to their logical extension. And I was like, yes, you know, of course, you know, it is absolutely wrong to let for America to let the rest of the world languish in its savagery or its bad regimes. Of course, you know, we could turn Germany, you know, Nazi Germany into like modern herbivorous Germany. So why can't we turn Iraq into like a, you know, a county of New Jersey or something like that. Right. Um, and this sort of all followed from basically classical liberal libertarian slash sort of hawkish classical libertarian kind of perspectives. Like, is it really like, What's the morality in letting the people of Iraq suffer under Saddam Hussein? You're right, you know, and um, um, you know, I'm not saying Saddam Hussein is my favorite. You know, is not he's not even my favorite dictator, right? You know, <laughs> but um, should um, I ask you know, who is? I, I think, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I think I think we found. I'm a big Salazar fan, actually. Um, um, Antonio de Oliveira Salazar from uh, Portugal in the. Uh, um, 20s and 30s through the 60s, very, uh, very long-lasting, effective, nonviolent dictator. Um, but um, in any case, um, definitely not Saddam Hussein. Although no. I have to say that the thing about firing the shotgun one-handed into the air while yeah. wearing a hat—that was fucking cool. Yeah, it was. But <laughs> I've seen that meme around a lot. I mean, I, I believe he actually pulled that trigger, you know, and yeah, yeah, um, yeah. the the, uh, uh, you know, so so so, yeah, I mean, you know, in any case, we found out what found out what was worse there. Right. And so, you know, that's a sort of um, I'm just mentioning that to say, you know, you absolutely cannot say even like a radical left wing position is wrong 
or of course that a radical right-wing position is right it's actually part of that well i think we've done a great job well i shouldn't even give i shouldn't say we i i kind of stumbled upon all this um thanks to my friend showing me your blog but you guys have created a, a viable third option um you know so i want to ask you about going forward politically, but it, it'll be way too much off in the weeds. So maybe I can convince you to do this again sometime. I, I do like to put my guests on the spot and say, uh, you're going to come back, right? But uh, <laughs> the two the two things, I think like the grand overarching things that you laid out in Unqualified Reservations, especially the gentle introduction, mm-hmm. I tell people that, because, uh, you know, not everybody is a, a rabid uh, mold bug Unqualified Reservations fan. And I always tell Indeed. them, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, you're probably shocked to hear that, but uh, I always tell them it's, you have to read the end of uh, a gentle introduction because to me that crystallizes the whole thing. And I said earlier, you kind of like set this vessel out for us to fill over the last 15 years. And it's, you know, two pronged, the art, the, the parallel institution of art. And then there's the perspective on politics that you lay out with the whole CEO and the, sure. the, the, the version, the updated version of monarchy you have, which is very idiosyncratic and novel. I've never seen it before. And I don't think anybody's really built on it since then. Now on Twitter, Nick Land, outsideness, said that your monarchism and fascism article is the best work you've done since Unqualified Reservations. I think I agree with him. It's definitely my favorite piece on the blog. Uh, so, I mean, since that's that's the thing that really got me contacting every single person I thought could maybe have your contact information. So I finally hit on somebody uh, furiously like, do you know Yarvin? Please, please give him my contact. Um, perhaps maybe for the, the rest of this segment of the show, you can maybe uh, lay out sort of um, the gist of that, that article. And, and we can talk about some of the high points and some of the, you know, people have a couple questions about a couple things and, and I do as well. So I don't know if you'd like to start by summarizing it for us. And kind of maybe showing how it plays on things you've already laid out in the past. Um, so, you know, the first question is basically, of course, um, this thing of being um, called the fascist, which is, uh, you know, has applied um, as a term that's uh, spread around, uh, you know, fa- fairly widely um, as a slur. And it's also a very contagious slur. It's not like communist, you know, it's like you're a communist if you have a membership in the California Communist Party and it's a valid membership and your dues have been fully paid. In that case, you're a communist. If, you're, if your subscription is lapsed, you're definitely not a communist. Um, and uh, if you're friends with a communist, what? Of course, you can be friends with a communist, right? Uh, you know, but of course, it's different for fascists, uh, you know, and, um, and so, you know, you might even say it's hard out there for a fascist. And, um, one of the things that, of course, that makes kids these days want to do is uh, be fascists or declare themselves fascists or go full Nazi or whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, there's certainly, you know, you can see the, um, I mean, uh, the metaphor I use to describe it is imagine you're a 15 year old and you're like in high school and you're getting this like stuff and everything 
every class from like, you know, PE to like, you know, Spanish is flavored with this same flavor, like this sort of, you know, I think of it as sort of like a bluish syrup, you know, at first it's very sweet. It's like, it makes you feel very good. And then you're just like, well, this is kind of gross. And um, you sort of get this grossness, you know, and everything and everywhere. And one day you're a very bright, innocent child. You go to your guidance counselor and you're, and you're like, well, just hypothetically, what is the opposite of this blue syrup? Um, and the guidance counselor gives you a look and she's like, very simple, Hitler. And that's when you decide to become a Nazi. And, and you know, the thing is, there's, um, you know, there's, there's something in a very kind of James Dean, you know, sense to be said for this kind of way of thinking. But ultimately, when you're doing this, you're still sort of within the power of the guidance counselor and you're within the frame of, you know, the sort of belief structure you're trying to get out of, you haven't gotten out of it, you've sort of gone deeper into it in a way. I would argue, actually, this is a more controversial historical statement that I don't want to defend. I would argue that actually a lot of the pathology of 20th century fascism comes from this situation of sort of being within a world in which mainstream culture is unequivocally Anglo-American liberal culture. And so you still have this kind of teenage, um, you know, attitude of defiance and rebellion, which can become, as anyone who's known a 15-year-old teenager knows, uh, can become rather toxic. Um, and this is why sort of basically when people are like, well, you know, you're a fascist. Um, well, you believe in autocracy. Well, you believe in monarchy. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll go with monarchy. Um, but do all those words mean at a sort of mechanical level, do they all mean basically the same thing? Yeah, they all mean basically the same thing. But what the F word does is that it basically associates this thing, which is a phenomenon stretching across history with basically one very specific instance of it. It's, it's as if I was basically to say, oh, you know, democracy, you mean the reign of terror, you mean wrote Pierre Marat, right? You know, and, and um, of course you do, right? That is, that was very, very, by any definition, that was a very democratic moment. And um, the, so when you basically say, okay, uh, you know, am I a fascist? You know, sort of the easiest answer as well, was Elizabeth I a fascist? What about Louis XIV? What about Frederick the Great? What about Peter the Great? Um, would appreciate if you'd get back to me with those clarifications because uh, what about our, our Oliver Cromwell? Uh, you, know, um, you know, these are Napoleon, Napoleon, you know, yes, Napoleon, no Napoleon, right? And of course, people seeing these list of examples, you know, sort of come back to like the three facts they know about Peter the Great or whatever is like, he was a Russian, he was in some sense great, he was really tall, and he did something with boats, right, you know, <laughs> and, and, and he made, uh, you know, people, um, you know, cut off their beards or something like that. Um, and he was a westernizer. And this is like a very strong trivia knowledge of like Peter the Great. But the thing is, you know, what you know about Hitler, as an ordinary American educated person, you could probably still write a decent little essay about Hitler, right? You know, that would probably be pretty historically accurate, you know? And so you're basically operating with this sort of fisheye, you know, 
view of history, which is sort of very distorting when describing not an sort of existing continuous regime, but with, you know, the question of what comes next, I don't see why it should owe more to Hitler than it does to Louis XIV. And is it because we're like closer in time or something? Is it because, you know, um, Hitler had autobahns and we have autobahns? Uh, you know, I don't really think that has anything to do with anything. And, um, you know, moreover, I think I have a somewhat better narrative in which to basically categorize the sort of Hitler and Stalin phase of the 20th century. Um, and that one is much more conducive to actual monarchy. So, well, one of the things I, I love about the essay is that you you differentiate and show that fascism, as we understand it, is a really unique kind of isolated uh, political state of affairs that, and this is the key, that is dependent upon democracy. That democracy, yes. right? It's fascism doesn't exist it without depends, democracy. It, it depends on democratic energy. And and this is the case, you know, the, the sort of the two examples I find, uh, you know, the period that I find that is sort of similar to um, the um, sort of wars of Hitler and Stalin in the 20th century, um, in which case, in which, of course, the Anglo-American war participated, um, the, the, the correlate that I find that's the closest is in some ways in the late Roman Republic. And it's in the late Roman Republic, not of Caesar and Augustus, not of Caesar and Pompey even, but of the sort of previous generation of kind of proto-Caesar-like figures, Marius and Sulla. Um, and Marius and Sulla were basically both candidates of uh they were both uh, strong men you might say they were both dictators pro you know whether they i think sulla took that name and marius did not but they were both effective dictators and marius was the candidate of one faction and sulla was the candidate of the other marius was the leader of the uh basically populist you know democratic faction so you might say that he was more like trump um, except that these comparisons are somewhat ridiculous, as you'll see. And Sulla is the, is the candidate of the ruling of the Senate of the ruling Republican oligarchy. Um, you know, so um, you might say he's more like Obama. Um, in fact, you know, comparing Sulla to Obama is um, just a source of, you know, great snickering. Um, you know, so the key about Marius and Sulla is that they both rule Rome as the leader of their own factions. And so Marius basically comes into power and he's like practices this. Um, I mean, this was a traditional Roman penalty for treason, but it had not been, I believe, this widely applied. He's like, OK, we're going to apply the ancient penalty of proscription to our enemies. Um, meaning the rich and powerful people who oppose us. And what that means is your life is forfeit. You, anyone can kill you and your property is seized and given to my friends. And uh, so this is a very good way. Imagine, you know, um, um, this sort of going on between, say, 
George Soros and Elon Musk, for example, right? You know, um, you know, Musk seizes power and Soros is uh, is killed and his money is taken, or you know, Soros seizes power and Musk is killed and his money is taken. That was kind of par for the course. So it was this was some very heavy shit, right? And uh, you know, Caesar himself is basically part of the of a Marion family and is sort of lucky enough to avoid. Um, you know, sort of being caught up in these purges, but basically these purges were kind of a way of life. Um, Elon Musk had this very funny uh, tweet in his Elon Musk way. Um, I, I do not know Elon Musk, um, but uh, he obviously knows um, Lucius Cornelius Sulla because he had this wonderful tweet. Did you see this tweet where he's like, um, you know, Sulla, I didn't you know Sulla, bust of Sulla, Santa Claus, picture of Santa Claus. Um, um, and then it had, you know, check boxes, uh, you know, going down in a line for both of them. And it was like um, making a list, checking it twice. <laughs> is coming to town <laughs> no it's if you've been naughty or nice <laughs> that 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 really shows uh shows a sense of you know historical uh sort of grim historical sense of humor that i think is necessary to contemplate but this he also shit. throws out little hints like that all the time i've seen other tweets uh, where it's like wait a second this guy get this guy sees what's going on <laughs> this guy's yeah well i you know clearly he's thinking about sula that's all we know so in any case um, uh, that's as far the, as we'll take it uh um um in any case uh sula um um and marius have this like hitler and stalin like thing about them so sula is like i restored the republic i killed all the enemies i restored the republic i'm gonna fucking retire unfortunately sula's memoir of his life his res geste uh is lost whereas we have augustus's augustus is like i did this i did that i ended the war everything is cool you know um um you know sula's must have been you know extremely interesting but we don't have it but in any case he restores the republic but he doesn't eliminate this conflict of orders that is going on it doesn't you know sort of eliminate this kind of incipient cold civil war which is more than a cold and it's actually a hot civil war um and um there's this one point where like marius has to like flee through a swamp or something like that um you yeah know, and i think he was in his 70s at the time which is crazy. yeah he's, it was like he's an old fucker yeah he's an old fucker right right and he comes <laughs> back right you know he's like the fucking tom brady of the roman republic you know and um, the, um, see the uh, sorry that uh you know i did uh, not see that not, analogy coming <laughs> hopefully that line will be preserved for posterity marius yeah. the tom brady of the roman republic <laughs> right you can never count him out and um but then you know in the end the defensive coordinator lets him down but um <laughs> the um in any case uh yeah so that you know marius and Siller are kind of an example of what not to do Right. And so, you know, when, you know, in the next generation, this kind of civil warship gets shit gets sort of, you know, lit up is um, another thing about Marius and Sulla. And this really goes with the territory of being a factional leader is that they really regard their um, dictatorship as temporary, which, of course, is the Roman tradition might have to last a little longer than the one year it's supposed to last on paper. But, you know, shit happens you know um and and so they still regarded it as basically putting the state putting the republic back on its feet i mean the empire always called itself the republic but they certainly weren't imagining 
any kind of regime change. They were imagining regime reforms in the direction favored by their faction. And um, the, the thing that made the Roman Empire so awesome, granted it was not perfect, but it was still the Roman Empire. Um, what made basically Caesar and Augustus so different from Marius and Sulla is that from the first, basically, and this was the policy of both Caesar and Augustus. Now, Augustus, after the death of Caesar and that little civil war, uh, you know, did do some purging, but it was very mild compared to Sulla's. And he's basically like, it's certainly true that Caesar, you know, Caesar could have taken more care for his personal security, right? You know, and, um, uh, you know, I think historians can be unanimous in saying they like Caesar, they don't like Caesar. He could have taken more care with his personal security. You know, uh, in any case, uh, Augustus did not make that mistake. Augustus dies in his bed and founds the Roman Empire. And from the first, but even with Caesar, from the first, two things are clear. One is that basically this is not in any way a restoration of the old system. This is a new and permanent order which owes something to the quality of a form that Romans were very familiar with, which was the Hellenistic kingship. This is why the Caesars never called themselves Rex or King in Rome. They were afraid to go quite that far, but there was also the sense that this was not an interregnum. This was not a period. This was basically you were just not going to have civil wars and political conflicts inside Rome again. And so the amazing thing that happens under the Caesars is that the old Roman conflict of the orders just goes the fuck away. There are occasionally little conspiracies of senators and shit, right? But there's basically no mass politics. It's just over. It doesn't exist. Like it doesn't exist in China today. Like it doesn't exist in California today right, except for presidential elections, right, you know, once you're basically in a state of sort of depoliticization, where, you know, first political violence becomes impossible, then all political action becomes impossible, like, democracy is basically over. And so the Caesars had the foresight to see this, to see that sort of politics as usual in Rome was ending one way or another. And they also had the foresight to basically see that even though, even though they had to come to power on a specific faction, on, on the back of a specific faction, they could not govern as the government of that faction. And, and they would have to basically govern all of Rome. And there's this great episode. Um, I think Caesar actually does this twice, but I'm remembering the time when he's just defeated the last senatorial army, which is the army of Cato. Everybody loves Cato. He's like more Roman than the Romans. Cato like commits suicide in like this like total Japanese way, right? Literally slits his belly open, dies. Caesar, you know, scatters his army and captures his headquarters tent. And in the tent, there is a chest, which is full of all of Cato's correspondence. So these are all his letters from his friends back in Rome. Now, you know, that's very useful to have for a number of reasons. For example, one thing a certain kind of devious aristocrat might try to do is write letters to both sides, assuring them that, you know, of, of eternal friendship, not expecting one side to capture the other side's letters. You know, this is like your ex-girlfriend's comparing notes or something, right? It's just really bad, you know, and, and you know, the... Um, and so Caesar's guys are feeling pretty cool about this. And so they're basically like, okay, you know, uh, when do we start? 
And Caesar's like, okay, here's what you're going to do with this chest. You're going to put it on a pile of olive logs. You're going to pour olive oil all over it. You're going to let the light the fucking thing on fire. And his guys are like, why? And Caesar's like, you don't understand. We won. They're all ours now. Right. And so, you know, that sort of applies as a doctrine when I hear people's sort of political doctrines that are expressed in a sort of with a kind of fantasy of either kind of dominating the blue states and forcing them to behave sort of culturally like, you know, the good old and culture line about Afghanistan, you know, um, um, conquer them, kill their leaders and convert them to Christianity. You know, that's sort of one way for red state people to regard blue state America that I think is, is uh, not serious. And uh, another way is this idea of sort of separating this map into separate countries or something, which I think is also not serious. Um, you can't really, um, like the solution has to be a single regime that is actually in charge of them and that they are not in charge of, right? You know, but as long as that regime is basically, uh, you know, what Michael Anton calls a red Caesar or a blue Caesar or whatever, as long, then you're looking at a situation more, much more like Marius and Sulla, which is dangerous, scary, unpleasant, Stalin and Hitler comparable in some ways and not really how this whole thing should play out. And so the, um, yeah, I mean, once you, once you sort of understand that distinction and you basically say, okay, both of both fascism and the kind of monarchism that I'm proposing, which we'll sort of get to that intriguing little design in a second, the NFT monarchism, I know it's terribly, terribly, cliched at this moment but um you know it's not a new idea but in any case um you know before we get to that basically understanding the difference between that and sort of going full hitler is really important it's also really important you know for people on both sides of this you know whether nazis or non-nazis to realize that going full Hitler is actually just not a realistic option because you simply don't have the level of democratic energy of like popular per need and like feeling of the right to participate in power that you had in the 1930s in any Western country. You have like orders of magnitude less. I mean, you know, people are like, oh, you know, there's some street fight somewhere between like based stick man and like, you know, the, the Bay Area Antifa or whatever. And I'm like, you know, in 1931 in like, you know, Berlin, like there's like two or three people getting killed every day, right? <laughs> you know, like there's just no fucking comparison between the levels of energy and violence. That means that you need to design a political machine that does not run on that level of violent engagement but it also means that like if you design one that runs on that level of violent engagement there's sort of nothing to be worried about because like you're not going to get it you don't have like a hordes of demobilized world war one veterans and there's always basically this like sense amongst the left that the right is sort of has their level of deadly seriousness which is completely misconceived <laughs> um, and, and 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 you know don't try to correct that sort of roll with it and build something that works in a different way yeah to that to that note about the violence uh i remember this one rather obscure hemingway short story i don't remember the name of it he's stuck in a tra the, the main character stuff in a stuck in a traffic jam in the interwar years in italy 
and uh, there's two guys going from car to car. And when they get to his car, they surround the car and one of them leans in with a pistol and says, so who are you voting for in the next election? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's serious democracy. Yeah. And you just, you just anticipated like almost all of my questions with that. So that's good. Um, you did say one thing. Well, two, two things. Uh, the level of democratic energy is not there. Um, that calls to mind, you, you use the word hypermodernism in that in that mm -hmm. essay, which I which I loved, because we have to consider politics. I, you know, for me, hypermodernism means uh, the, the digital age and the Internet age. Right. And we have to consider politics as they relate to the Internet. And I think the Trump presidency is a perfect. And there there are so many legacies that are unconsidered that basically go back to the broadcast age. And, um, right. Exactly. I'm and, not interrupting. They'll go on with that thought. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a complete thought. I mean, there are just so many systems that make sense and are understandable if you parse them as kind of like broadcast age, 1930s on systems. And they're just not, they're increasingly sort of ill-suited even to the task of like political communication and political organization today, I would say. So my question would be before we get to the NFT, on the one hand, I, I look at the internet in an objective sense as um, one of the greatest mass mobilization tools of all time. And sure. if it was existed in a vacuum, I would refute what you said because of the potential that it has to organize people and get them rallied up. And I think Trump did that to an extent. But at the same time, we saw that uh, the, 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 the people who administer the internet are more than happy to comply with the regime and take out one of their... Uh, you know, their enemies, one of their political enemies, sure. as we saw Trump just get deleted off Twitter for, you know, if we really dig down, no good reason, uh, no ostensible reason. So, you know, what do you think about that? Do you think it sounds like you've already answered the question that you, that you really don't think that the Internet can be used to its full potential to to mass? Rally. No, I think I think I think that um, I think that the Internet can be used to its full potential, but I think that its potential is sort of different. It goes in a different direction than most people might think. Um, you know, I'll point, for example, to one experiment that didn't really work, um, but still showed a certain amount of intriguing possibility, which was Storm Area 51. And, yes, you know, yes. when, when I look at Storm Area 51, whose organization is not too dissimilar from the Canadian Truckers Convoy, which is also probably not going to work, but is also, um, you know, an intriguing example of what's possible. I sort of hate deploying these examples in, real, in the real world because you're basically playing a move that is not part of a game and you're basically giving the other team the experience to be able to respond to that move. Um, you know, so I hate gestures like this, but it's, it's, it's certainly a, a beautiful and interesting move that suggests a lot of sort of interesting democratic possibilities for democratic energy. The thing that I would say is that basically, um, you know, I have this neat little formula for <clears throat> political uh, energy or democratic energy, really, in this case, which is E equals MC squared. Um, so M is the mass how many people you're ready to throw, you know, how many people you have. Um, and then there are two C's. One of them is commitment and the other one is cohesion. 
Commitment is basically how much they're ready to do. Zero is nothing at all. One is voting, two might be like a write-in vote or a donation or something like that. And 10 is suicide bomber, right? Um, and you know, in between those are various levels of like direct action and violence and so forth. Um, and the third, which is in some ways sort of both the easiest and the hardest is cohesion. And cohesion is the capacity for coordinated you know, um, uh, intelligent action. And so when you look at basically you know, political engagement, democratic engagement, say in the election of 1860, you know, you see that a substantial percentage of these voters are just raring to go fight each other with actual guns, right? And you, you know, when you see even say elections in the 50s, like you look at like the, you know, violence of the Democratic National Convention in 68 or whatever, people took those elections with like, you know, they were much more ready to get rowdy in a much larger sense at that time. Even the level of, of sort of political engagement that you see in the day, days of rage period when there are all these bombings by people who are now all like respected professors and shit, um, you know, you're seeing a level, I don't think even that could happen again, right? And so you're seeing commitment dropping, 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 dropping like a stone. Um, and this is why you're seeing democratic energy dropping even as the number of warm bodies increases, right? So then you're like, okay, what about cohesion? Cohesion is interesting because um, I think what people have relied on to date is sort of the natural cohesion of institutions and community allegiances. And of course that cohesion is just getting like, you know, like, unless you're like in a, like a black community where the reverend can be like, y'all are voting for Hillary and everybody votes for Hillary, that's cohesion, right? And, um, and that sort of natural cohesion of institutions is fading away rapidly. Families are being atomized, you know, churches are disappearing. All sorts of sort of cohesive institutions are becoming weaker. And instead we have these sort of giant blobs of like red and blue. Um, and, that's, I think, you know, that atomization is, of course, you know, a quality of modernity that everyone has remarked on. So we have basically decreasing commitment and decreasing commitment cohesion. So we have decreasing energy. So how does anyone do anything? Right. And the answer, I think, is that you have to focus on cohesion rather than commitment. And you have to basically, rather than sort of recreating natural political structures, um, sort of based on deep emotional allegiances around cohesion, you have to build structures that are essentially performative and frivolous and often to the point of even being ludicrous that are basically still useful because they only need to be used once. So you're basically building this sort of structure. It's like, you know, in, in the Baltics in the fall of the Soviet Union, they did this, this great stunt where people formed a line, a human line, literally that went the whole length of the Baltics holding hands. Like, you know, just this sort of incredibly dramatic based move. Um, and, um, you know, sort of when you're talking about the kinds of, I mean, I'm not saying that that brought down the Soviet Union, right? You know, but it's sort of the kind of interesting level of cohesion that you're demonstrating, not at a visceral level, but at a sort of calculated performative level.
it's much more like a flash mob in the like, you know, positive, oh, we're going to all bring our instruments to the train station and play the symphony at the same time. Uh, not in, you know, all we're all going to loot Union Square at the same time since, right? You know, um, and that's sort of, that is a very unexplored field of, um, of politics. And it's unexplored because basically political scientists aren't used to having a population that is so cosmopolitan and so ironic and, and so frivolous really. And, and, and sort of the gain in irony allows it to do, you know, is like your commitment is a rock bottom, right? But as long as you can get a little bit of commitment to do something really outrageous and just really hilariously, you know, delightfully outrageous, it might just work. And, you know, that sense of like, that sense of irony, like this is the most ironic civilization in human history. Absolutely. Like the level of like cosmopolitan wit that has always been present in little elites and little intelligentsias, but is now sort of, you know, spread around the population. Everyone is familiar with like, you know, Brechtian, you know, literary devices. Everyone is familiar with breaking the fifth wall. Everyone can walk, watch Inception and be like, oh yeah, there's like five layers of reality and you go backward from this one into that one. And so, you know, that sense of basically your connection to society and reality, not being a visceral one, but being sort of a performative one allows you to act in a performative sense which is just totally unanticipated by traditional politics. Make sense? That, yeah, not only does that make sense, it's inspiring uh, me to take this conversation in a totally different direction. I won't do that, but my show is is inspired by that state of affairs right there. At least the, the part of the part that I use to examine the way, you know, art appears, the way the way it has evolved over the last 20 years. And it brings to mind um, Marshall McLuhan and, and, and guys like David Foster Wallace, who, who sure. are kind of saying that this psychological condition uh, is created by the mediator of, you know, the screen televisual media. Right. So and, and 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 a certain kind of like affluence and a certain kind of but it's very like it's very like if you look at the level of like irony and like film sort of creeping up from the 50s through the 2020s. Like, it's like just unbelievable how much sort of deeper and more layered and more sophisticated everything gets. And then you still have this sort of model of political participation, which is sort of design, you know, it seems unchanged from the 1930s. Yeah, well, not to get off in the weeds, but um, maybe maybe you'll allow me a, a quick question that's slightly off topic here. Sure. Slightly, slightly off topic of the essay, which is this hypermodern era for lack of a better term mm -hmm. is i think maybe defined by uh sincerity and i mentioned david foster wallace because he's the guy who yes. wrote the essay about the new sincerity it's defined by a combination of sincerity and irony well and, i was you know, gonna say they kind of switch sides right you know what i mean yeah no i don't know what you mean like 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 the, the left used to be the ironic side because they would laugh at the regime and now right. the left is the sincere side with the with woke politics, whereas the right used to be 
the sincere side, you know, with. Yeah, uh, I, I guess I mean, I guess I mean, sincere in a slightly different sense. I wouldn't call woke politics necessarily completely sincere. I mean, okay. but the thing is, you know, what I mean by sincere is that sort of direct and, uh, you know, direct engagement and sort of honest engagement is really prized, you know. And so the thing is, when you're, you know, there's a way in which Donald Trump is very, very insincere, right? But there's also a way in which he's very sincere because you can tell that the public Donald Trump is the same as the private Donald Trump. This is the real Donald Trump That's an that you were seeing on screen. Yeah. You were not seeing basically, you know, someone playing Donald Trump, you were seeing Donald Trump, right? Whereas uh, that that sense that there's no difference between the actor and the character is much less present in a sort of very protean fellow like Barack Obama, you just have no idea what Barack Obama is like behind the scenes, right? You know, and and because he's a very capable actor, right? And and he's actually, whereas Trump is like one of these actors who just plays himself. And so that sort of, you know, authenticity perhaps is a better word. And it's like sort of the combination of authenticity and irony is like so, which is, I, I see as, as, definitely like you see both of those things i mean you know as bap has said um bronze age pervert of course uh you know what is this thing irony i don't understand this gay thing called irony right you know and 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 which is sort of you know a perfect summation of the uh the union of authenticity and irony perhaps um and 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 those are like you know you see already like you know memes kind of flowing in this regular direction from the sort of dissident world into the mainstream already. And that's exercising a kind of power, which is like, you know, um, um, like the first, like, it's a very diffuse, like being upstream in a fashion direction in that sense is the closest, most diffuse approximation of power that this whole thing has gotten to at all. Um, and, but it's, it's, it's exactly the point that it needs to get to. Well, it goes back to what you said about the red pill. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah, ter yeah. the term let's, uh, I could, again, this, this could become a whole different topic if we keep, keep on that. So would you like to explain the NFT presidency or the NFT? Let's explain the, you know, the, the, the NFT of CEO, King, God, Emperor, whatever you want yeah. to call it. Right. So, you know, there's basically a problem in, um, autocracy, if you want to use that word, in monarchy, which has been solved in the private sector, which isn't trivially solvable in the public sector, which is the problem of creating um, what I like to call an accountable monarchy. Um, and of course, that means an accountable absolute monarchy. And so the accountability is in a way an exception to the absolute power, but you want to make it an exception that doesn't sort of damage that power at all or that damages it as little as possible. In the private sector, this problem really has been solved because if there's a world in which, you know, I've been the CEO of companies and or of a company and um, a company in which um, the, uh, a company in which the board is um, involved in managing the company is a defective company, something that company is on flames circling down toward the water it may not have crashed yet if the shareholders are involved like it's a complete shit show and so to speak of that structure of shareholders and board 
as corporate governance is really wrong because governance means management. Management is the role of the CEO. What it is is corporate accountability. And, you know, what you want to make sure is that, yeah, in general, like the danger of, of choosing a like CEO of Chipotle who starts poisoning the burritos or something, which is sort of the equivalent of like Hitler phobia um, is pretty unrealistic. On the other hand, you know, people get brain tumors, things happen. Maybe he was a perfectly good guy, you know, when he was appointed the CEO, but he has a, you know, tumor in his hypothalamus, which has made him evil. And like, you know, he's buying the cyanide. He's like, you know, putting an industrial, huge tank cars of the stuff are arriving at Chipotle headquarters. And he's like, I order you to put the cyanide in the guac, you know, and, and, and right. So, you know, then, um, but only for Jewish, never mind, uh, you know, but, but, but yeah, right, right. So this is, this is like, you know, could happen. Yeah, uh, no, probably not. It seems unrealistic, but like, you know, do you want to go there? No. And, you know, do you want even, no, you want Chipotle is a huge, important enterprise. The CEO of that should be a top guy. He should be a me, he or she should be amazing. And, you know, if they go down to an A minus or a B plus, you know, there's a lot of A players who need a chance, right? And that's why you need a board of directors, ideally, but mostly they sit there, they listen to reports they are like, very good. Um, you know, yes, we will sign your board resolution and they don't bug you at all. Um, and the problem is, however, that in a like sovereign environment where there's no one to enforce like contract law and things like that, there is no prospect of actual accountability because actually the board can just be leaned on by the CEO. Moreover, the board can be leaned on not just by the CEO, but also by anyone else. And so if like Antifa are coming to the board's houses like every morning, like slaughtering pigs on their doorsteps or whatever, you know, sooner or later, like they're going to be like, wow, all this could just stop if I would just play ball. Right. You know, and um, and so if you have a situation where um, the um, um, where the board can be. Um, tampered with either by the CEO or by any other power, um, you really don't have a workable engineering design, right? Now, one approach is to basically say, okay, we're going to punt this all up to the sovereign layer. We're going to have basically a patchwork of many independent states holding each other's shares and kind of being each other's boards of directors. Could work. Uh, it's sort of hard to set up. Could work. Um, and, you know, I'm not sort of disowning that general idea. But um, you also want a design that doesn't require friendly other powers in this, you know, that, that can't, that doesn't have to be instantiated on a global scale. Um, so it, basically, you can't really solve this problem of how do you have a board of directors to whom the monarch is actually accountable until... Um, you have this wonderful new invention that can execute contracts basically above sovereignty, which is the blockchain. So it's basically really tacky to talk about blockchain sovereignty. Uh, using the word blockchain at all, as, far, as far as I'm concerned, like should be done only with great embarrassment at this point. Um, and you know, I, I'd actually rather just say ERC-721 tokens rather than saying 
the NFT word. Um, and there's a little bit of a cringe that happens every time you read the word. 4chan 4chan actually convinced me that NFT stood for some something else, but um, (laughs) the uh, um, uh, in any case, we won't go there. Uh, this is a family broadcast, but um, the um, I'm not sure what the T never mind. Um, but um, the in any case, um, yeah, so you have this layer of contract execution that is above sovereignty which is kind of cool. Of course, you know, you have this problem with NFTs, which is who actually cares who has the NFT rather than the book. We were talking about Zero HP's book earlier. If you have the NFT, but not the book, like, does it make somebody have to give you a book? No, I mean, what it really says is you got to sell these things as a bundle, right? And if you don't, they lose value because either of them without the other is worth a lot less. Um, And, so that that sort of works, but it works maybe in a different sense, um, you know, than than people expect. So who cares if basically the board holds sovereignty tokens and they're like, we have decided that you, the CEO of, you know, Sovereign Chipotle have been poisoning the guac. So several of us have gotten a dose of bad guac and we know many who have died. Uh, you, you will be removed effective immediately. And, um, you know, uh, somebody nice will be... Uh, will be inserted. Um, and the, um, um, and then of course, uh, and so, you know, the Ethereum blockchain has decided, right? Well, who gives a fuck what the Ethereum blockchain, you know, decided like, you're the, you're the dictator. You're like, you can take your blockchain and fuck right off. Like this is the common problem of linking the blockchain to the real world. But, but there's another technology and this technology is currently used only to secure nuclear fucking weapons but we know it works because when was the last time you got hit by a nuclear weapon you see right far too long mission (laughs) it's called a permissive action link or or pal and basically what it does is literally put you know these beautiful beautiful nukes you know which could be put to so much good um, um from being fired at all unless commanded by the president who unfortunately listens to all of his advisors and stuff and you know probably wouldn't just get drunk and do it but um and probably couldn't just get drunk and do it and uh, but in theory he could he could get, just get drunk and do it and it would be an interesting test of his constitutional powers and um you know like maybe if nuke the ocean somewhere or something i don't know but um in any case um the um of course you know all uh, you know, gun aficionados out there are already horrified by the idea of, well, not without reason, of a smart gun. Uh, they will be additionally horrified by the idea of a firearm, which is not only smart, but not only internet enabled, but in fact, blockchain enabled, so that a smart contract can basically tell whether it fires or not. But what you can certainly do is you can say, this is completely technical practice technically practical with actual existing technology granted smart guns would kind of suck um but they would still be better than like hunting rifles um and and that only goes up with your tanks and cruiser platforms and all of that all of these are basically slaved to a key which is literally on the person of the president the currently behind his balls Taped behind, behind his balls. balls. Yeah, okay. taped behind his balls. <laughs> right. that, that was the original idea, right? And so basically, um, you know, the the you know the protection of this person for whom 
weapons work and uh, weapons do not work for any other person. It may be actually in such a position that in order to get it off him, you have to like break it. Right. Um, and um, uh, but, you know, he's the like in any case, you know, what you're doing is you're saying that the decision of what key is in charge of the military is up to this board of trustees. And so really they actually do have the power to fire a sovereign CEO, which is kind of crazy. Um, the next question is basically how you sort of organize this group and how you keep it from becoming the power itself, because it's only natural for an accountability body like this to basically be like, hey, you know what? We could just be in charge. Yeah. Yeah. That was right. my next question, so, actually. That's your next question. Yeah. Right, 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 right. So, so, you know, in the end, you know, all of these systems come down to social conventions. What you need is basically a body in which that social convention is very, very secure. And, uh, and, and sort of the taboo you know, the sort of the ritual of, of performing the process and the way that they perform it is very, very sound and does not slip into becoming sort of the new Senate of the realm that, you know, then just declares what their water boy should do. Right. So, um, you know, first of all, you want to, you need to restrict the output again, contractually of this group. The only thing it can't comment, it can't say things. The only thing it can do is basically pick the next CEO. Um, because otherwise, again, it's doing this thing of exercising power directly, right? Secondly, you're basically, when you're creating a sort of board of trustees like this that is supposed to last essentially forever, you're still doing a thing where somebody has to pick those initial trustees and that somebody is going to be your first CEO. The right way to basically imagine building a system of this thing is that there's still no substitute for absolutely trusting one person because that person has to establish the system and that system will basically be, should be established to basically continue the governance of that one trusted person to make him basically virtually alive in terms of successing of choosing competent successors who share the same competence and the same mission makes sense so far so far. so so far so basically you um what you're doing in this is that your chief goal is to avoid this board of trustees either becoming the subject of external pressure or of acquiring its own collective identity so essentially what you do there is number one, okay, how do you select these people? You say, okay, I've got, you know, I'm the CEO, dictator, king, god, emperor, whatever. I want my, my realm to live forever. Um, how am I going to do this? Well, uh, you know, because I got where I am, I have, let's say, 31 very good friends who I really respect and trust. I'm going to give each of them a key. I'm going to say to them, do not reveal yourself to any other. Okay, you in your board meetings, you will come to your every board meetings every three months, you will interact under this pseudonym. You will not know who anyone else in these board meetings is. And moreover, if your identity as a holder of one of these keys is compromised, you need to behave, behave as if you died. 
if you've died, what happens is your key is found in your safe deposit box. There is a will. Your will says so-and-so is next in line. They get the key. They can pass it on, et cetera, et cetera. What you want to avoid is basically multiple keys coming together. What you want to avoid is known people who can be pressured in a known way. This needs to be of sort of very, very high honor that is kept a secret by a very, very small number of people. If you boast of it, you're a target. Like, why would you want to be a target, right? <laughs> Give it up, right? So there's sort of no sort of local incentive to kind of break with the norms of this kind of little society. It's basically feels like something very important and very cool to be part of, but it still has no real capacity for kind of violating that trust and becoming a direct organ of power. Well, this is by far the most comprehensive and, and, and workable, I say workable with a caveat that we'll get to, yeah. uh, workable and, and well thought out alternative and almost, dare I say, vision for the future that I've ever come across. And as I said before, it's an elaboration on what you laid out in Unqualified yeah. Reservations. And it, it's a necessary elaboration. I was very it happy is. to see you go back to that idea and develop it more. Um. I guess two things immediately come to mind. The first, uh, we're, we're going to do a question from the audience section, but uh, one of my friends actually anticipated what you just said. So I'm going to read her question now. Uh, my friend Chelsea, who goes by her at is frail skeleton. She mm. asked what at now I think is an obvious question based on what you just said is that what's to stop the board from secretly contacting the CEO or in other words, What's the anti-corruption, uh, anti-conspiracy, uh, you know, yeah. firewall? That ultimate, ult yeah. And ultimately, I'll just reiterate what I said, which is that it basically ultimately requires the board to be kind of narrowly and kind of cryptographically like like limited in the way that they can communicate. They oh, basically yes, need yes. To have, they need to have, they need to not know who each other is. They need to have a narrow communication channel that basically only works for these board meetings. And they need to basically treat that responsibility very, very seriously. And so what develops in such a, you know, in a meeting of this group is very much a sort of an ideal form of a, of a parliament with a small P in which there are no parties and no factions and no sort of external incentives. And basically everyone is there as an individual actor. Also, the, um, oh, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, yeah, I, I was done there, I think. And so, you know, basically like you're always trusting in the last resort, government is a human system and you're always trusting humans. But basically the other, you know, super important thing that I should have mentioned earlier is that because your board doesn't regularly participate in the process of management, it doesn't sort of develop the kind of local attachments to like specific projects or specific teams or specific things. It's really, it doesn't, acquire either the sort of lust for power or this attraction to the specific. And that kind of keeps it from desiring power more than it should. I think you said also in the article, if you, if you're, they, you know, they have the call with the CEO and the, and the, and the board. And if one of the board members isn't there, it's like no compromise, you're out. Um, yeah. So it's almost like you can't contact each other 
being built into the technology itself. Now, the other question yeah. I have, I almost hate to mm -hmm. ask, but it's really Please. at the forefront of my mind. Um, you make it a point to say repeatedly throughout this interview and in the essay that uh, this this can be nonviolent. It can be a nonviolent regime, and we can also implement this nonviolently. Right. Uh, and of course, I am a, a a lover of peace. I'm a political moderate, and uh, I'm I'm virtually uh, I'm virtually a Democrat. <laughs> that being said, <laughs> that being said, I don't see how we could really get through this transition peacefully, mainly because uh, to create the, the power vacuum necessary to implement this, because I don't see the regime doing it, implementing it. I don't see the cathedral allowing no, no, this no, to happen. No. Right. So what's no, the no, 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 no. I mean, this this basically, um, you know, the process that this takes, I mean, forgetting even you know, the, um, the, the innovative design for, for continuing monarchy. I don't know that I, that I would get there in one step. I might, you know, just go to what I call a constitutional presidency as the start of that. Um, and then, you know, sort of a constitutional presidency is one where the president is a dictator who nonetheless submits to free and fair elections in four years, right? And, um, and uses those four years to become extremely popular through his extreme success, you know, and sort of, you know, after that, you can basically, you have to make the case to sort of this actual democracy that actually releasing the reins will give it the best government that it can receive. And that case can only be made by the example of what an absolute government can do for them. Um, but that absolute government should not result, regard itself as inherently temporary. It should regard itself as making that case. And so, you know, basically the question of violence then comes to the fore. Let me put it slightly differently. Yes, are there people in our society that engage in political violence? Certainly there are Antifa, there are et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How much, you know, what is the cap there? There are, you know, militia, um, but what is the cap there? What is the, the level that like um, you, people would engage in violence on at, at the, you know, how many other Bernie bros are going to join Antifa and join the John Brown gun club or whatever and become, I mean, these numbers are tiny and they're tiny in a situation where this kind of violence has all of the encouragement of the authorities, right? The real powers well, that's that be. The key. And, and, and violence in the other direction is mainly this kind of posturing. It's like, yeah, there's 2 million people with guns. They use them to shoot targets. Right. You know, and um, how many of those armed people have ever killed a human being? Right. My God, almost none. And, and the, the, like, that was once upon a time, a much more normal thing. And, and so you're basically, you have a lot of LARPing going on there and a lot of the sort of, you know, supposed potential for violence comes from the LARPing. And when you're basically looking at, okay, how much violence can be expected from like blue state America, you know, number one, blue state America is the sort of composite of um, sort of working class and client populations with the professional mercantile classes, they call themselves. Okay, the idea of like, you know, the, the like, of even like doing like days of rage shit among like the American upper class is just preposterous. 
Uh, I mean, it's just utterly ridiculous. The idea that you, you know, you would say, okay, we're going to disband the State Department. But wait a second, that leaves an army of 30,000 foreign, former Foreign Service officers, you know, with time on their hands and nothing to do but battle. You know, what are they going to do, build barricades in Georgetown? And like, you know, I mean, like, do you have any idea who these people are? You know, like, I mean, you know, no, they're not right. You know, and, and so that level of potential for violence is something that you get when you're not thinking in terms of E equals MC squared. And the, um, um, the E here is just like very feeble. Um, and that's because the commitment is very feeble. I appreciate and, a sober political assessment. You get yeah. that so rarely these days. Yeah. And so and so it's like basically there's actually that's actually very, very encouraging. Yeah, you just white pill me it, on the whole thing. <laughs> it's just it's very, very encouraging because it's basically like, no, actually, you know, determined change will meet no resistance at all, you know, and um, like, uh, you know, the time. I mean, the clearly the time if you're trying to if you're if you out there, dear listener, you know, are about to be elected president and you want to try this, the time to exert maximum energy, people in the streets, emergency orders, states of emergency is not when you're about to leave office, but when you've just entered office. Right. OK. OK. Right. OK. OK. Could, could we get it right this time, please? Uh, you know, and yeah. and 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 you need to use that momentum to move forward very, very radically. And you need to basically declare this very novel constitutional theory that the president of the United States is the chief executive of the executive branch, which has been systematically just violated by the whole post FDR regime. Right. And is just like it's unacceptable. It's like it's it's a mockery um and so you know basically what you can do with this constitutional presidency is basically anything to the executive branch which is more or less anything and you know the difference between more or less anything and anything will start to seem increasingly pointless um because actually it's basically everything and so, you know, the step from basically constitutional president to temporary dictator in the Roman sense is pretty straightforward. At that point, you're basically saying, hmm, you know, here's this other model of governance that is basically in which we have a CEO, like everything else that works ever anywhere um, is uh, seems to work a little better than the old way of doing things. And hey, wait, wow, after four years, you can walk in any city, anywhere, at any time of day or night. And there are no like humans decomposing on the sidewalk. And there are just like the country has industries again and like, you know, um, a zillion other like little, you know, signs of recovery. If you can't make those bloom, you know, really quite significantly in four years, then you're just not approaching the task with sufficient urgency. Um, but that seems to me to be basically a not completely unrealistic sort of path to, you know, a sort of, uh, a period of renewal, which perhaps would resemble the renewal of the early Roman Empire after the fall of the Republic. Good, good. That, because one of my hangups about your whole program was exactly that, because I just every time I think about transitions 
uh, where politics undergo a rapid change, really, with the administration of like one guy or in one generation, yeah. uh, the Rome, uh, the Republic to the Empire, uh, the French Revolution, uh, obviously Stalin and, and Hitler. It always kind of comes in on a wave of violence. Uh, so I well, yes and no, yes and no. This is because you're not thinking of of the um, well comes in on a wave of violence is true, but is not. Think about the two things. Think about the fall of East Germany, um, and think about the denazification of Germany. Because the denazification of Germany, okay, it's true that the Allies imposed their will based on a fearful amount of violence. But it's also true that in Germany and Japan after the war, they were absolutely stunned by how little violence was right. needed to control these populations. And it was actually became very, very clear that just having feeling the complete and utter right to rule was entirely sufficient. And like, you know, all kinds of terror tactics, which were tactics a little more in Germany than in Japan, I gotta say. Um, you know, these terror tactics were just totally unnecessary. And actually, like, the firmer your grip, you know, the less resistance you're going to have. And that firmness was not really imposed by any unusual degree of violence. It wasn't like, you know, the allies ran like death squads, like pulling Germans out of their houses and shooting them, you know, right. And, and, and so, and that was a society that was militarized, that was propagandized to the hilt. And what we have today are just much more like the idea of like serious, violent political resistance is just not natural to most people. And you're just not going to see it. And in fact, just the fact that you don't see it and instead you just see this enormous collapse of everything is going to demotivate true believers like you would not even imagine. And that's what it did in the fall of the East. Yeah, I'm pleasantly surprised that that discussion is leaving me optimistic. Um, it's it's <laughs> just great. We have to keep this positive vision. And this is why you're so important. Uh, you have to keep this positive vision for the future in, in, in the realm of both culture and politics and come sure. up with ideas and put those ideas out and submit them to people and have them. You know, and proselytize and proselytize and, and, and don't, uh, you know, attack the enemy and preach to the enemy. You know, every every Saul out there could be a Paul, yeah. you know, and um, and that's like the you know, that to me, you know, ironically, you know, that seems like a conciliatory approach. But when you think about it tactically, it's actually much more aggressive. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> and, and 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 it's like, no, actually, like, I'm just going to take the people behind me for granted. You know, I'm going to actually march ahead rather than trying to, like, preserve, pump up my crowd. Right. You know, and um, and yeah, that's that's where it's necessary to go. I don't know. No, I like it. I like it. I um. We're going to have to leave the essay there because I did want to get to a couple questions. All right. But uh, thank you. That was good to to it bears repeating that uh, I did not expect to come away optimistic. Not that I expected to come away pessimistic either, but um, I, I'm feeling good about the future all of a sudden. Excellent. Wonderful. Wonderful. This is a real this is a real white pill broadcast. Yeah, for sure. Um, for sure. And I'm kind of you know, I, I started my Twitter career uh, while I was reading Decline of the West, Volume One and Two. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I was, that's a brilliant book. I was, it is. It is. It's it a is. Book. And I was but I was kind of like the black pill guy for a minute. And I was like, I'm not trying yeah. to be I'm just trying to tell you what Spengler said. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, you know, like it's the choice having the you know, the sort of the difference between this is the fall. 
you can sense decline, you know, and whether this is the decline exactly. of the Republic or the decline of the empire is so much more important. And hopefully it's the decline of the Republic because the decline of the empire will be much worse. Absolutely. Much worse. Much worse. Absolutely. No. All right. Let's get to your, let's get to your, let's get to your, your questions. Good. Because um, you, you answered it quite a number of them so i hope the people whose questions i'm not reading heard the answers in there uh the first one i'm going to do at the risk of making a bit of a abrupt transition and discussion this is this is something i wanted to ask you all along i had to table it for time but uh, mr parallax optics who's unfortunately uh, left us on twitter but i was able to contact him through a back channel and i specifically excuse me <coughs> said hey uh, i'm going to be interviewing Yarvin, uh, do you have anything to ask him? And he said, well, as a matter of fact, I do. So it's a well, little. Yeah. You know, I, I've been I've been I, I will apologize to Mr. Parallax Optics because I've been ducking his interview for quite some time and it's not out of any any animus toward him. It's just that most of the things that he wanted to ask me are sort of things about like, you know, the sort of movement or the scene or whatever. And I'm just like, I really, not only do I not know anything about the movement or the scene, I sort of prefer to know as little as possible. Yeah, right um, on, right on. And, 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 and that's why I, I prefer to stick to the, the substantive whatever, you know, like basically, you know, I started blogging without any expectation of creating any kind of a scene or anything whatsoever. I find that people who get involved in sort of doing that despite their best efforts become um, I think it shrinks them in a way or something. Uh, and so I basically really like, I don't, I just don't want to be that kind of cult leader. I don't really want to be a cult leader at all. I want to just be like more of like a cult, like profit maybe. Yeah. Right <laughs> um, on. Right on. But uh, yeah, yeah. So that's 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 my answer to Parallax. Well, for the for the record, I reached out to him because me and him are friends and I had no idea about any of that. Uh, it's just fine, it was coincidental. Fine, fine, fine. But but it was it was it was a public apology to deserve because uh, I have I have is a fact that I have ducked him um, and and I apologize. No, it's and he and he got and recently and he recently got banned from Twitter, which is very, very sad. Yeah. What did he do wrong? Oh, man. Should I censor my answer? Or should I say he he quote tweeted the uh, the the known homosexual James Lindsay and insulted uh, him and oh. and we all think that Lindsay's uh, followers just dogpiled on him and mass reported him because he was gone within that, three hours of that happening. That would not be surprising. That's you know I've had some dealings with Lindsay. He's like you know. I don't know. You know, I only want to say good things, but I was so, hesitant to uh, say doing... that about him. But Bap, Bap <laughs> did isn't he? Isn't he very uh, very good with a sword, though? He might be. Uh, yeah, he he's... might be part of part of a kind of future knightly movement. So he studied let's, the Shaolin and the Wuntang. So. Exactly, exactly. So so you know, let's let's you know, if I can say nothing else good about him, let me say that. Has James Lindsay studied the blade? He has studied the blade, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm and not we sure come what I was him, doing. We come to him now in our time of need. We have the audacity with me. the barbarians at the gate. <laughs> you come to me now. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, how about this? This is what I'll do. I will skip to another question. I think you're going to like this one. It's from a guy that I don't know if you've come. I think he's pretty new to Twitter. He goes by the name of Fisher King. His at mm -hmm. is Fisher King 64 and that's Fisher as in um, 
uh, Bobby Fischer, the chess player. Got it. So I'm going to, um, I'll ask this first. I'm just going to read it. What do you think of Frederick the Great of Prussia as a model for the monarchy slash CEO? Someone who used war, conquering Cilicia, and immigration, bringing the French Huguenots to expand his economic base. Oh, yeah. Frederick, I mean, I've, I've read, um, um, you know, it's not the, not my favorite Carlisle, but I've, I've read in Frederick uh, Carlisle's, you know, um, eight volume history of Frederick the Great, you know, twice. Uh, you know, I believe actually Hitler was, was reading it in his last days in the bunker. Um, but my, I have a different copy. It's not Hitler's copy, but, um, the, um, but, but, <laughs> um, uh, and I'm reading it in English, of course, although my copy was oddly, it was printed in Germany, but, um, the, um, or no, it was printed in England, but has a, an ex Libra stamp from Germany in any case. Uh, and I got it with uncut pages. Yeah. You should be jealous of me, but, um, in any case, yeah, Fred, you know, Frederick the great was a very, um, very modern king, you know, some uh, Carlisle, of course, pours cold water on this, but that was his age. Some say he was a homosexual. Um, you know, actually, I interestingly discovered this hint in um, like, I think it was, I forget where it was, but it was like, you know, the five good emperors of, you know, from Hadrian through um, Marcus Aurelius. There's some, and they sort of adopt each other. There's some hint that this is actually sort of intergenerational links of basically a homosexual gay sex sodomy ring. Uh, you know, so the five good emperors are actually the five gay emperors. Uh, you know, and 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 and, and like I'm I'm not this is not proven, but you know, the theory. Of course, you know, I'm a, a big, big believer in gay Hitler theory as well. Right. You know, and um, Lothar Mactan, the hidden Hitler. Check it out. It's really good. Hitler was gay. No doubt about it. So, you know, basically, I'm not one to find gayness all over history. Um, but the five gay emperors theory is one that I find intriguing. And of course, the theory that Frederick the Great was gay, which is, you know, Carlisle rather unconvincingly pours cold water on is also fairly strong. Um, and so, you know, that and, of course, his complicated relationship with Voltaire, uh, you know, makes him a very modern monarch, but he's definitely operating in this sort of Vitellian frame of reference where, yeah, war is absolutely the right to the right to make war is in the like 18th century international law is the most fundamental right of a state. If you've lost the right, if Spain has lost the right to if, to invade Portugal, to recover their historic territory of whatever, then Spain and Portugal, then Spain is a satellite state, you know, because clearly whatever that dispute is, it's not just between Spain and Portugal. And so, yeah, I mean, clearly, you know, Frederick the Great, first of all, manages his technical battles well, he generally wins them. Um, you know, he fights this cabinet war over Silesia, which um, he has a very complicated legal argument for why it actually belongs to him. Uh, which revolve, you know, <laughs> resolve, and and ultimately, um, you know, this was a time that still recognized the right of conquest. That wouldn't say, oh well, Crimea is not part of Russia, despite being, you know, conquered by Russia and entirely inhabited by Russians. Uh, we're going to declare that it's terra nullius or something like that. Um, yeah, this was basically Frederick the Great is a is a is a is a is a great model, and you know, he's also. In some ways, you know, he emerges from his biographies as a very modern human being who's quite easy to relate to due to the fact that he's gay. 
<laughs> right. Other right. That's the necessary. I can't wait to get in touch with Fisher and say, uh, so to, to sum up Yarvin's answer to your question, you're going to have to hear the whole answer when I release the podcast. But he said, Frederick the Great is gay. And I'm going to offer no more, no more illumination on that answer. Um, all right. Another question I got. Well, so. Well, I'll, I'll say that to the end. Uh, another question I got that you sort of answered is from a, a good guy, smaller account, Nathaniel Fish. He says, how fucked are the Zoomers? But we're, um, we already said we're optimistic, so maybe they're not fucked. We're optimistic. We're, we're, op- we're optimistic. I think that, um, you know, the, the great advantage that the Zoomers have is that they know they're fucked. And, and this was not something that was present among millennials have great difficulty in realizing, like, how fucked everything is. But, you know, millennials have this misfortune that they got the sort of wave of the kind of blue syrup at a time at which it seemed kind of fresh. And so they were like, oh, wow, this stuff is really cool. Yeah. Okay. You know, our parents were into it in the 60s, but, you know, this stuff is really cool. Right. And the Zoomers are just like, it's so fucking stale for them. And it's just like, yeah, my grandmother would love this. Right. You know, and once you're at like, my grandmother would love this, you're just like, man. And so really, the Zoomers are just like, they, you know, some of them, uh, you know, are completely conformist and, you know, little Tracy Flick types and they go, they go with the flow, but some of them just like hate hippies, man. Like you have never seen. <laughs> I've been, I've been learning that as I meet some of them online. And it's actually also been another source of optimism because you're yeah, right. You're yeah. absolutely right about that. Yeah. 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 The levels of like nihilism are just off the charts, you know? And I think that's a really beautiful thing. Well, yeah. Yeah. It sounds counterintuitive, paradoxical. <laughs> Here's a fun one. Um, and I, I don't mean this to come across clunky by jumping around here but uh, some of these questions were so good i really i really wanted to do this this is a really fun one by the praetorian who who's at is uh, titus aquila who is the mm. greatest general of antiquity in your opinion oh well that's you a know, great one right yeah you really have to go with caesar on that you really i mean you can't fault so I mean, come on but more than alexander oh <sighs> I think Caesar's battles were harder and he had more of them. I think he fought more complicated and difficult and especially outnumbered battles. Uh, You know, Alexander did a lot of winning, but a lot of the winning was just to do, I think, to the military superiority of his like Greeks who were like special forces guys, you know. Uh, um, I mean, this is how like like Xenophon's Anabasis, right? You know, it's just like 300 guys in the middle of nowhere, but they're like a fucking Navy SEAL team and just like everything that fucks with them, they kill, you yeah. know? And, yeah. and so, yeah, so he had more, whereas I don't think the advantage of like the legionaries over the Gauls may have, might've been quite as great, but uh, yeah, so let's go with Caesar on that. All right. All right. I don't think you're going to get much pushback. Yeah. Good. Good. All right. Before I get here. back, I'm going to, uh, I meant to lead this up with my random question. In my opinion, the, the, my favorite movie of the last 20 years is Blade Runner 2049. So I have two questions. One is, what do you think of that movie? And two, uh, one of my favorite, probably top three books of all time is Dune. And while I like the movie, the, the recent release, the Vill- Vill- Villeneuve, yeah. I have no idea how to say his name. While I liked it, um, because Blade Runner 2049 is one of my favorites and because the book is one of my favorites i got hit with a little bit of a disappointment from the movie 
it and, was good but it was good but it wasn't great it was yeah, like it yeah. was better than you know i really despise the peter jackson lord of the rings films like yeah. i'll never accept those as canon um you know um blade runner 2048 was interesting it was like i sort of i feel like i need to watch it more times in a way which is always a good sign with a film it kind of wasn't what i expected and i think it, it did capture some of the like sort of you know in a way it's sort of even more disjointed and disconnected than the original it's definitely more so it's sort of more lynchian than the original in some ways and i think that captures kind of a nice tone in this and there's also a lot of sort of repeated moments and kind of things taken from the original uh yeah i i but yeah definitely it's like you know dune felt like there was a lot of very well executed straight up the middle stuff um whereas the other one is clearly um and you know what's a good odd science fiction film though is ex machina oh my god have you are you listening in on my friends conversations i've been going <laughs> off about that movie the last week i have an episode recorded where that's like the the lynch i haven't released it yet the linchpin of my yeah, whole yeah. discussion that is so underrated that's and really uh, nice I have a I have a thread planned for it on Twitter mm-hmm. and I, I hope it pops off. But it's I'm, I I worry it's like a forgotten film. Please talk about that, though. I just you got. Oh, me so excited yeah. Yeah. Well, tonight. I mean, I mean, it's 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 like it really, um, you know, Oscar Isaac playing the tech CEO really comes across, really sells his persona. Uh, I forget who the main is. It um, uh, what's his face? Uh, Jeff, uh, Eisenberg. Uh, you know the um, the actor or the, the director? The, the 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 actor. I'll look the, it up. I mean, um, um, it's not him. It's I know who you're thinking of. It's not that guy you're thinking it's of. It's not. It's not that guy. Okay, uh, but it's the guy playing basically that guy. Yes. You know, uh, yes. Uh, um, um, but yeah. In in any case, basically, you know these these characters really like sort of the feel of the whole thing is really very very right, and just the sort of the feeling of being at a sort of level of technology and wealth and power beyond the ordinary feels felt sort of very real in that film and in some ways it's sort of more the setting is more interesting than the kind of the AI than the AI plot the AI plot is kind of nice as well but it's just like really nicely shot and acted and kind of set and yeah it's really it's definitely an underrated film i keep running into people who don't know that film and i'm like what excuse me well i couldn't have we couldn't you like yeah yeah yeah. drawn to a close with a better a better uh topic than that all right well this is one more one more if you have time i have time for one more okay perfect perfect so i'm going to morph parallax's question into a question that i've also had which is Somebody came on my show, you know, oh, actually, no, you know, Geo. Geo's judging the passage prize for art. I, uh, I don't oh, you know, know Geo, actually, but yeah. Oh, yeah, I know of him. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yes. And yeah. <laughs> I asked him, uh, where are we going for the future? And Parallax's question was, do, do we need a new religion? Is that the only thing? I don't know if you know Heidegger's mm-hmm. Der Spiegel, only a God can save us. I, I'm, I think he... He must have had that in his mind when he asked. That was his question. Do we need a new religion to invigorate the movement going forward? The movement in quotes. Uh, So I asked Gio that and I said, is that going to be neo-reaction? And he said, neo-reaction is dead. I I don't think so either, but I don't know. So 
where do you see it going going forward? Um, is it? I think a real. Is it picking up that, steam? Go on. Yeah, I think it's it's. Um, I, I think that sort of taking neo reaction as an ideology in that sense that is basically right i think it was never i never like i never use the the like acronym nrx for example like you'll never see me using that and that's basically for a reason which is that you know it's sort of not intended as a belief system of its own it's intended as something that kind of can kind of permeate other ways of seeing the world i really wanted to permeate basically the liberal way of seeing the world uh, that's because I'm an aggressive megalomaniac, but I'm, I, but one with a conscience. I always think of myself as a megalomaniac with a conscience. Um, and, and in any case, I'm the prophet, not the general. Um, and yeah, and so you basically want to see, like, it shouldn't be like, it shouldn't compete with Islam and Christianity, right? You know, and the question of, sort of the do we need a new religion which is a slightly separate question from that again i sort of find our era a little too tired to create a new religion that is not one of basically nihilism there's sort of perhaps a role for some kind of spirituality and meditation there possibly even you know i've often mused about the possibility of an acid catholic church in which communion involves LSD. I'm sure, you know, I'm not. That has to have been, that, that has to have been suggested. I'm sometime sure in the I'm 60s. not. The, yeah, I'm sure <laughs> I'm not the only one who invented that shit. Right. You know, but I mean, you know, sort of like as a like mechanism for, you know, the question of what, how a monarchy would reorganize society, which is an interesting question, is a little different from the question of how you reorganize society in order to get a monarchy. And I don't believe that basically a new religion is sort of a path to a new regime. I believe if anything, it's the other way around. I absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Well, thank right. you well, so much. This was phenomenal. This was absolutely, this was absolutely super fun. I really, yeah, I appreciate questions. it so much thankful thankful to everyone who asked questions and uh